This is The Rounds Table. Hello everyone and welcome back to The Rounds Table. My name is Andre Madison. I'm a fifth year general internal medicine fellow at Western University and I'm joined today by Dr. Aaron Spicer, who is a general internist at Western University. Thank you for joining us again, Aaron. My pleasure. All right. You know how this works. Let's get right into it. Sure. So the article that I chose today was recently published in the JAMA Internal Medicine called The Effect of Exercise on Functional Decline in Very Elderly Patients by Martinez Vallea et al. All right. So what was the bottom line? So this was a single-center, single-blind, randomized control trial that was designed to determine if an in-hospital intervention aimed at providing moderate-intensity exercise can improve the functional outcomes of very elderly patients that were admitted to an acute care of the elderly, or ACE unit. It was a positive study that demonstrated that purposeful multi-component exercise intervention is not only safe, but it's also effective in preventing functional decline usually associated with hospitalization of the elderly. Interesting. So this is obviously aligned with some of your research interests, but tell us why you chose this article. It absolutely is. But I also think that this study is important because as physicians, we're commonly really focused on fixing the acute problem that brought the patient into the hospital. And we sometimes forget that sleep deprivation, poor nutrition, a lack of mobility that accompanies an admission increases patient's frailty such that by the time they're discharged, they're at high risk of being readmitted due to acquired frailty while in hospital. This paper acknowledges that weakness in our current model of care and demonstrates that by rethinking our traditional model of hospitalization, in this case using individual multi-component exercise interventions, we can not only improve patients' functionality, but also positively impact cognition, sense of well-being, and likelihood of falls. Tell us about the methods. So as I said, this study was a randomized control trial. It was conducted over a two-year period at a single center where they had about 35-bed ACE unit in a tertiary public hospital in Pamplona, Spain. Like the CTU and ACE units here in Ontario, admission to this unit are mainly from the emergency department, and the commonest admitting diagnoses are heart failure and infectious diseases. So within the first 48 hours, patients were either randomized in a one-to-one fashion to usual care or the exercise intervention. And who was included in the study? To be included, patients needed to be older than 75 years old and able to ambulate at baseline, either with or without help. They were excluded if they were expected to be discharged within six days or were just too medically unstable to safely participate. So for example, if they had an uncontrolled arrhythmia or a recent heart attack. The typical patient enrolled in this trial was an 87-year-old lady with approximately nine comorbidities who is fairly functionally independent despite a mild degree of cognitive impairment. Patients in this trial were admitted for approximately eight days. And what was the intervention? So patients randomized to the usual care arm of the study received typical hospital care, including referral to the physiotherapist or PT if needed. The intervention group underwent two daily 20-minute exercise sessions, one in the morning and one in the evening, which is in keeping with the typical Spanish routine. The morning sessions were supervised by a specialty physiotherapist and included three types of lower limb exercises and one upper limb exercise that used resistance machinery, as well as a regimen of balancing and gait retraining exercises that included tandem walking, line walking, walking with small obstacles. The evening sessions were unsupervised and consisted of light load-bearing exercises such as medicine balls or dumbbells and being encouraged to walk in the corridors. I'm picturing a gym where the average age is 87. 
Yeah, it's a fun picture. I like it. So tell us about the primary outcome. The primary outcome was the change in functional capacity between baseline and discharge. So baseline being time of admission and discharge. This was measured using two metrics. The first is the short physical performance battery, which is a score made up of gait, velocity, balance, and leg strength. A change of one for the physical performance battery is considered significant. The second metric of functional capacity, which I really liked, was the Barthol Index of Independence, which is a measure of ability to perform one's activities of daily living. And a change in five is significant for the Barthol. They also looked at a number of important secondary endpoints, including cognitive capability, mood, quality of life, and hand grip strength, which acts as a marker for frailty. And they also included some important hospital metrics like length of stay, readmission, and post-discharge mortality. This study, which could obviously not be blinded for the patients, was blinded for the assessment staff to both the study design and the group allocation, and they analyzed the data using an intention-to-treat approach. All right, let's get to the results. With respect to the primary outcome of functional capacity, both measures of physical performance using the short physical performance battery, as well as the measure of independence in activities of daily living, that's the Barthol, met statistical significance. Additionally, the measures of cognitive impairment as measured by the MMSC, depression, which was measured by the geriatric depression scale, and quality of life as measured by the Euroqual 5D all improved, as did hand grip strength or the marker of frailty. What wasn't different were the CAM scores, which we all know is a measure of delirium, and I was a little bit surprised by that. Furthermore, the length of stay, the number of patients who had falls in the hospital, and the 30-day readmission rates were not statistically significant. Okay, so their primary outcome was statistically significant, but some of the more potentially tangible outcomes of length of stay and readmission rate not significant. All right. That's right. So there seems to be this disconnect between the functional benefits of the exercise program and a lack of impact on the metrics that are really meaningful to hospitals like length of stay and readmissions. The authors address this in the discussion section, which I thought was really interesting. And they suggest that maybe we should be looking at more meaningful qualitative metrics. So for example, they suggest that measuring future readmissions due to hip fractures, which is also important and meaningful to a hospital and from a financial point of view, as well as the future hospital length of stays might be more meaningful. So for example, if they have more strength and better balance leaving the hospital during this admission, maybe they're gonna be less likely to fall at home and break a hip or less likely to be deconditioned when they're admitted next time. So anything else that you take from the study? I think that we do have to talk about the generalizability of this study a little bit before we move on. So a specialized ACE unit is quite common uh, amongst tertiary centers, but is not so common amongst the community hospitals. So this might be a barrier to generalizability to the greater population across Ontario. Additionally, the space for an equipment room, as well as the cost of hiring a physiotherapist trained in resistance machinery, and the upfront costs of the equipment might be prohibitive, especially in the cost-restrained environment of our hospitals in Ontario. The third thing that I uh, bring up is that when discussing this paper with some of our colleagues here, um, a couple times reference was made to the fact that as soon as patients would be well enough to actually participate in a program like this, they're usually being teed up for discharge, given that we're under bed space crises in a lot of our tertiary centers in Ontario. 
It makes me wonder if there's a difference in how beds are allocated by population in Pamplona compared to Ontario. The final limit to generalizability of this study is that the patients with advanced dementia and those that are unable to ambulate at baseline were excluded. But if we think about our patient population on the CTU, advanced dementia and baseline inability to ambulate make up a large portion of our patient population. So it may be that those patients can benefit from some aspects of an interventional exercise program like this, but of course that would need a separate study. Yeah, I think you make lots of great points about the generalizability, and this would not be possible in all hospitals and for all patients, uh, of course. So what do you take home from this study? How does it impact clinically? So as we know from previous studies, the loss of muscle mass, which can be 10 to 20% per week amongst hospitalized elderly patients, and the loss of muscle strength during hospitalization can have huge impact on disabling our elderly patients. And it's a ubiquitous problem across healthcare centers, which makes this an important paper. For me, the paper emphasizes that there are safe and effective ways of reducing the negative impacts of hospitalization on older patients. And not only can we reduce deconditioning, but we can also improve the quality of the inpatient experience for these patients. Awesome. A very interesting article, and I appreciate you bringing it to our attention. Thanks. Okay, let's switch gears. The article that I chose was titled Nephrology Consultation and Mortality in People with Stage 4 Chronic Kidney Disease, a Population-Based Study. This was published in the CMAJ in March of 2019 by Dr. Ping Liu and colleagues. All right, so what was the bottom line of this paper? In this prospective cohort study of adult patients with stage 4 chronic kidney disease in Alberta, Canada, outpatient referral to a nephrologist was associated with reduced mortality. However, what I think is even more interesting is looking at who with stage 4 chronic kidney disease in Alberta is actually being referred. I'll leave that as a teaser for the results. Okay, so why did you choose this particular study? So there are both Canadian and international guidelines that suggest nephrology referral for stage 4 chronic kidney disease. And stage 4 meaning EGFR 15 to 30. Exactly. But I still find it difficult to know when is the right time and, and for which patients should be seen by nephrology. And I think to answer that question or that uncertainty, you need to think about, well, what is the goal of a nephrology referral? Is it for further assessment and workup of potential etiology of their chronic kidney disease? Is it to optimize their CKD-related conditions, for example, anemia, mineral bone disease? Or is it to discuss with patients and their families about their preference and candidacy for potential renal replacement therapy, aka dialysis? Now, previous studies have looked at the association between nephrology consultation and mortality. This study tries to build on the previous by being a prospective study and also trying to improve upon some of the potential confounders that previous studies have been criticized for. Okay. So tell us about the design of this particular study. So this was a prospective population-based cohort study in Alberta using linked administrative data. Study participants were 18 years of age or older and had two consecutive EGFR readings between 15 and 30 over a 90-day period between the years 2002 and 2014. Participants were excluded 
if they had previously been on dialysis, if they had a previous EGFR of less than 15, or had seen a nephrologist in the two years prior to enrolling. The exposure was outpatient nephrology clinic visit, and the primary outcome was all-cause mortality. But as I mentioned above, they also looked at trends and patterns for who is being referred to nephrology and who is not. All right, so now I'm really interested. So tell me about the results. So there were over 14,000 participants included in the study, and 35% of them saw a nephrologist as an outpatient. In an average of 2.7 years of follow-up, 66% of the patients died. Looking at their primary outcome, nephrology consultation was associated with a 12% reduction in mortality, which was statistically significant. However, as the age of patients went up, the association weakened, and those above the age of 90, there was a loss of significance between mortality and nephrology clinic visit. However, what I find more interesting is looking at Table 1, which documents who was seen by a nephrologist. So if patients were younger, had more rapidly declining renal function, and more severe proteinuria, they were more likely to see a nephrologist. That makes sense. However, if patients had congestive heart failure, atrial fibrillation, previous stroke, dementia, or were from long-term care, they were less likely to have a outpatient nephrology clinic visit for their stage four chronic kidney disease. So Andre, does it surprise you that only 35% of patients had a nephrology outpatient visit? Initially, that seemed low given the guidelines that are out there and given what we would see here in London as far as the involvement of nephrology. But I think when you when you look at the methods of the study and you look at those with stage 4 CKD in a bigger context, it may not be surprising. So what I mean by that is the study included only those who were seen by a nephrologist as an outpatient. And 40% of the study participants had hospitalizations during the study period. So there's certainly a possibility that patients were seeing nephrology as inpatients, and this was not being captured. And also that a EGFR between 15 and 30, as patients get older, is maybe not that remarkable. And not everyone, I think, would trigger our attention to necessarily refer to nephrology. So on second thought, it's probably about what I would expect. Okay, fair enough. Uh, tell me about the limitations of this paper. So as I mentioned above, the paper is only looking at outpatient nephrology clinic visits. So there may be missed nephrology contacts for those who were admitted. But I think what is the bigger issue, and I'm not sure if you can call it a limitation or simply a missed opportunity, but this article only looks at mortality. But what I think would really enrich the picture is looking at other factors. So did seeing a nephrologist, for example, have an impact on the number of participants who were on di or who received dialysis? And in what forms of dialysis? Did it change the likelihood of patients getting peritoneal dialysis or home hemodialysis? Did it change the percentage of patients who had planned dialysis starts versus emergency starts? Did it change hospitalizations? Did it change function? I think that would add a lot to this entire picture. 
I agree. You've, you've captured kind of my running thought as I read through this paper for sure. So take us home. What do you think the take home message is? I think there's two things. I think the first is in this population, so stage four chronic kidney disease, there does seem to be an association between seeing a nephrologist and reduction in mortality. This has been seen by studies previously, and the reduction in mortality has been found in previous studies to be as high as 40%. So that does seem to be there. It's interesting that the association weakens as patients get older. So the benefit of seeing a nephrologist maybe lessens as you get older. Mm -hmm. But we also don't know why there is this mortality benefit. Is it because patients are, are being dialyzed? Is it because the nephrologists are optimizing comorbidities and CKD-related conditions? We really don't know. I think the second point is you wonder whether there is inequality or even inequity in who is being referred to nephrology. The fact that patients with multiple comorbidities who with dementia from long-term care are less likely to see nephrology makes me worry that we're missing an opportunity to discuss advanced care planning and what would be the patient's wishes if their renal function does deteriorate where dialysis becomes a real possibility. In the day and age of, of advanced care planning, I worry we're missing the opportunity to have these, these discussions. This paper does not give us that answer, but it, it certainly does bring it up as a potential uh, question. It's a really important point, I think. So for me, this article serves as mostly to help us have further discussions around the benefit of nephrology consultation for those with advanced chronic kidney disease. What is the role and what is the goal of that assessment? And also who should be having these conversations around dialysis or what would be patients' wishes if their renal function were to deteriorate? Great. All right, now, as you know, we switched gears to the good stuff segment. So tell us about what you've been reading about. So as you know, I quite like some of Andre Picard's writing. He's a Montreal-based public health reporter and columnist in the Globe and Mail. And his article from last week tendentially relates to my first article today, and it's also picking up some attention on the CBC. So for your good stuff this week, I strongly recommend Googling Picard's articles titled Why Pajamas Can Impede Healing in the Hospital. So it describes how simply wearing PJs gives patients a sense of lethargy. Which, which makes sense to me. If I wear PJs all day, all I want to do is lounge about and watch Netflix. So the article talks about how patients spend most of their time in bed in the hospital, at least 90% of their time. And we know uh, from previous research, and I mentioned earlier, that older inpatients can lose between 10 and 20% of their muscle mass per week. So in, in an effort to get people up and moving, England's chief nursing officer, Professor Jane Cummings, launched an initiative with the hashtag NPJ paralysis, which is quite catchy. And of course, they did some research around the introduction of this initiative in the UK, and they found that simply getting dressed every day as an inpatient resulted in lower rates of infection, lower rates of pressure ulcers, lower rates of falls, and get this, patients who got dressed were discharged on average 1.5 days earlier. I guess if they're already dressed, it's easier to get going on their merry way. That's right. It's sort of interesting that simply getting out of your pajamas reduced the risk of infection and falls. I, 
surprising to me. So you have to think about it a little bit by extension here. So patients that are up and dressed are going to be less self-conscious about getting out in the hallways to move about and get some exercise walking about. And so less time in bed means less likely to get pressure sores that can become infected. If they're up and moving, they're more likely to be able to get to a bedside commode or to the bathroom, which means less catheters, which in turn means less catheter-associated UTIs. Up and moving reduces the rates of uh, pneumonias. So I, I can see the link between getting dressed and, and the lower rates of infections. With respect to falls, there's pretty good body of research that shows that despite our reservations and kind of the misconception of patients and families and, and healthcare providers that getting up and walking increases your risk of fall because you're up and moving. But in fact, the opposite is true. The literature has demonstrated before that by getting up and moving and working on balance and strengthening, then patients who walk are actually less likely to fall. A very simple intervention of just getting patients dressed. You got it. So the, the hashtag NPJ paralysis fad has hit Canada too. Alberta Health Services is embracing this campaign and, and has launched it forward. And I think it's just a really great example, again, of how rethinking our traditional care model can transform the patient care experience. Very cool. So from, from PJ paralysis to uh, hitting the links on the golf course, okay. my good stuff segment is a article that was published in the BMJ in October of 2018 that is titled Golf Habits Among Physicians and Surgeons, an Observational Cohort Study. So being a golfer myself, this one's going to be really important to me, Andre. Well, as you'll see, internists are not doing very well. Oh. So the study examined both a physician database in the United States and compared that to a golf database in the United States and looked at among specialties of both medicine and surgical specialties, who played the most golf and who were the best golfers. So... Among all areas of medicine and surgery, orthopedic surgeons were the most likely to be golfers, but vascular surgeons seemed to play the most golf and were also the best golfers. The top three specialists as far as best golfers were all surgeons, and internists were not doing so well. Okay, well, wait a second. How do they measure best golfers? Well, so they're looking at average handicap. Oh, which, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, and this is only looking at golfers who are enrolled in a golf database. So golfers who, who golf quite a bit. But the worst subspecialties as far as golfers were endocrinologists, unfortunately, followed by oncologists, dermatologists, and physiatrists. Surgeons are much better golfers. There we go. <laughs> I don't know why, but we'll, we'll leave that for another episode. That's the end of today's episode. Thanks again for joining us, and thank you to Dr. Aaron Spicer for coming on the Rounds Table. Thank you for having me. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. Read more at healthydebate.ca slash roundstable. Follow us on Twitter at Rounds Table or on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstable podcast. The Roundstable would not be possible without our fantastic team of on-air and behind-the-scenes personalities. Thank you to all of our hosts, to our producer, Emily Hughes, audio editor, Emilio Garcia-Flores, communications director, Grace Zhao, segment director, Shaliza Halani, host director, Dan Marinescu, director of quality and evaluation, Wilson Kwong, 
and faculty mentor and founder of the Rounds Table, Amol Verma. Join us next week for an exciting discussion of the latest medical research to grace the airwaves. You never know what's in store until you tune in. <laughs>